Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Welcome, friends, to another edition of Tent Talks, which is the interview conversation portion of our Tent Theology Podcast. And I'm very happy today to welcome Dr. Luke Bretherton to the program. Luke is the Professor of Theological Ethics and Senior Fellow of the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University. He is the author of a number of books, including most recently, Christ and the Common Life, which is a fantastic manual for political theology today. And quite apart from that, Luke is also a really nice guy, a Pentecostal charismatic Christian, and somebody who has shared a lot of his time and talents and energy with people like me who have been coming up through the ranks. So I would just like to commend Luke for being not only smarter than anyone in the room at any one time, but also nicer and more humble than anyone in the room. So all in all, a pretty good uh, person to have on Tent Theology. Luke, welcome to the program. Very good to be on. I think I'm going to have that on my tombstone (laughs) as a a memorial statement. And I realized just just talking about how humble you are, and now the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is tell us about your promotion, because you are not actually anymore the job title that I read out, are you? Go on. What's uh, your yes, promotion? No, I just got, I just, they very uh, lovely uh, gave me a, I've been given the Robert E. Cushman Professor of Moral and Political Theology. So it's in the okay. weird, weird world of academia. Uh, if you get a, if you get a, another name, it's rather like having a kind of saint's name added to your own name. Uh, it means you're really special when you have so, a name chair. <laughs> so Robert E. Cushman is thrilled right now. He'd be He's so very thrilled. thrilled. He's a, he was actually quite an esteemed uh, Wesleyan or Methodist theologian in his okay. back in his day, and uh, so the chair is named after him. And he was one of the key founders of Duke Divinity School's kind of okay. theological heritage. So it's a now, great honor to hold the chair. Well, I'm. It couldn't have happened to a, a better bloke. <laughs> and keen-eared listeners will notice that your accent is not the kind of accent normally associated with the uh, eastern seaboard of America. Where are you from? Oh, no, no, the, the, not the eastern sea. We're in the southeast. You're in the I mean, southeast. I'm below the Mason-Dixon line. You are, aren't you? North, I'm in the Carolinas. It's, you uh, are, yes. It's, they would be very insulted. They, they they don't have the barbecue we've got down here. This is we hold patriotism very lightly on this podcast, so I think they can, they'll can. they have to deal with that. <laughs> no, but I'm, originally I'm a Londoner born and bred, so okay. uh, it was a big shift. I moved over to North Carolina in 2012. Yeah. And that was uh, to move to move from yeah being a Londoner to a small southern town was quite a shift. Yeah, I bet. I mean, one of the things I was talking when I said when I introduced you as somebody who shared your time with me is that when you left your job in London, I was invited to apply for that job. Oh right! And you 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 gave me some some tips and you you gave me some time. I did not get that job. I, they looked at me and they said, "There is no way this guy is going to fill Luke Bretherton's shoes." And they quite rightly gave it to uh, to another person who maybe one day I'll get her on the podcast as well. <laughs> Thrash, you know, bury the hatchet and all that. But anyway, I, and I always remember how kind you were for the, that as you were departing England to uh, to spend some time with me. So uh, so has how has America been treating you? I mean, when you when you arrived in the States, it's a lot of a different beast than it is now. Yeah, I mean, it, well, I mean, it, it, funnily, funnily enough, I was just thinking about that. I mean, 2012, again, I arrived in the middle of a very contested presidential election. Yeah. Um, and so kind of questions then about 
in, in many ways, it was many of the same issues, um, a little bit more subterranean. But, yeah. uh, but, I, but I don't think, and suddenly, I think also suddenly coming into the South where the kind of uh, questions of racism are just so palpable. Um, and so that was a, that was coming from the UK context where I think there, there, it does work differently. Obviously there are parallels, but it does work differently just and a very different history and different political economy. Um, but, but so that was a, that was a very sharp distinction. And I think also the, you see in the South, the, the, the kind of lack of public infrastructure, um, I mean, silly things from, there's virtually no public transport, you know, I, I didn't learn to drive till my mid thirties. So I've always loved trains and I don't really like driving. And, and that's just uncon to not drive here is both unconscionable and impossible. Um, so, uh, yeah, so there was some stuff like that, but also just seeing, I'd never quite seen poverty. I mean, if you drive, I live in the research triangle area, which is quite prosperous generally, not, not exclusively so, but I can drive three, four miles west of here and the kind of the trailer parks and in, and, kind of rotting shacks where i thought oh there must be sheds you know and then it turns out people live in them um yeah it just feels very different to a to a uk context you realize what difference a welfare state makes and the the kind of palpable sense of precariousness that people live with you so many people are just one paycheck away from familial disaster and that's obviously been brought home with covid uh, in, in a very sharp way, but even before that, we've had, you know, it, I live in I live in a context where the weather can kill you. Uh, coming from a temperate climate, right? That that's a very different context, and and whether it's Hurricane Katrina or subsequent hurricanes that have been through, and, and the devastating effect they have, again, it's not as if natural disaster hasn't been a constant presence in the bit of the world I live in, um, in a way in which I think COVID has made everyone realize particularly in europe that the kind of we're not in control of the world around us but that it was very striking to me to move to the, i'd never i'd never really thought about the weather as a problem but you know if you you move out it, when there's snow we have this very weird form of precipitation here called uh -huh. ice uh, ice storms oh yeah and I, I thought, what is this like what's this crazy and i remember my first day in duke but kind of when in the winter came and and um, everyone, they, they, some alert went out and literally everyone was sprinting for their cars. Have these crazy Americans? What are they? Why it's just a bit of rain. Right. You know, we have plenty of rain <laughs> in the UK. Anyway, this stuff came down. I was biking into work at that time. Thankfully, I have a neighbor who has a large F one fifty Ford truck, which I've become very jealous of. Um, and uh, and and he gave me a lift home because when that stuff comes down, it's it's weird rain that's semi frozen, and as soon as right. it hits anything, it freezes. So you instantly have thick ice on the roads. All the electricity goes out. Yeah. You're you're kind of you know stuck in this mayhem, and and I thought, what is this crazy place? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's a it's a very it is a very different context. There's a sharpness to the issues here. Yeah, that has certainly challenged me theologically to think harder about things I just hadn't really thought about uh, in, in in the London context. So I want to hear about doing political theology now in this climate and in this and in the culture you're in. But I am actually interested in your London context, too. How did you get into this? How did you what is your story of becoming a political theologian? How did you first become aware of that this was a thing? 
That's a, that's a great question. I, I, so I started out life, I, I mean, I never intended to become an academic or, or a theologian. Um, so I, I really, my first problem, I would, I'd spend a bit of time in parliament as a researcher for an MP. Okay. Uh, and then, um, but then my first proper job um, after leaving university, and this was just after the Berlin Wall had come down. It was kind of early, early 1990s. So I got a job uh, in kind of 1992, early 1992, with an organization called Care. And they'd got a b- bunch of money from an American foundation to do work in Central and Eastern Europe, kind of working with churches there, rebuilding society in a kind of post-communist context. Um, so I did that for five, six uh, years, a little bit mm-hmm. more. Um, and that was a remarkable context. I mean, it, it, working in that context, seeing you had both the legacy of obviously state socialist structures. You had a turbocharged capitalism kind of ripping everything up and the kind of mass privatization of all the industries there. And with that, the emergence of this kind of kleptocratic class, you had the death of the European Marxist project. So it was, this was supposed to be the great secular emancipatory future. And actually what you had then in place of that was this resurgence of religion and everyone from, um, you know, whether it was the kind of Catholic church or Orthodox church renewing every kind of evangelical group to the Moonies to everyone was coming. And I remember extraordinary meeting I had quite, I mean, I didn't, I was like early twenties and I, I think it must've been an accident. Anyway, I got shown in to see the then Russian minister of education, um, and he wanted help trying to find a textbook and they were trying to rewrite Russian history and they wanted a kind of religious element to it. And, and I, you know, we, I was clueless. I didn't know what we were doing. And, um, but he told me this remarkable story that the a particular group had been in a particular religious group had been in and offered him personally a million dollars wow. to take their textbook as the Russian. And he turned around and said, I will not sell, I will not sell the souls of Russian children. And it just, it's always haunted me that, that sense of that kind of what was going on at that time. So you had then, I think, and, and, and as part of that, you also saw, and I had lots of friends working in the context of former Yugoslavia and the kind of rise of ethno-religious nationalism mm-hmm. emerging in that context. And so the, the kind of world we now live in seems almost anticipated. Now I look back on it, anticipated yeah. the kind of shift to a post-secular context massive economic inequality with a kind of plutocratic kleptocratic class ruling everything the rise of a kind of corrupt authoritarian uh, and accompanied by a kind of ethno-religious nationalism um and and yeah so that and and in that context the church working with church leaders who had been through the persecution of the communist world and remarkable remarkable people who had this really integrated vision of uh, both the kind of the arts and social political engagement mm-hmm. and that the to, to, to and they'd been involved in smuggling bibles and 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 i thought well, and and they were trying to navigate this hyper plurality that right. had this violent edge and and renegotiate what did a faithful witness in response to the state and the market and a, a context of religious plurality look like? How did you do that faithfully? Yeah. And I thought, oh, rather naively, someone must have written on this. Right. Um, and it turns out the cupboard was a bit bare. So that I kind of fell into doing a PhD in, in response to that question and, and did it part-time, actually, in, in as I was continued working because I wanted to keep my 
kind of feet grounded in the right. reality um, of what was going on. And so that's that's what led into the initial interest. And and then in my first book, I've done this case study of uh, hospice care as a form of Christian hospitality, as a way of navigating difference in relation. It didn't, it was distinctively Christian, but it was open to, you could be a Hindu Sikh uh, uh, atheist or whatever, and still in take part in hospice care. So it was yeah. distinctive, distinctively Christian. How, could we navigate radical diversity, at, at moral and, and religious diversity, through certain kinds of practices mm-hmm. um, and hospice care being a concrete form of that in, re- in response to a highly disputed issue, that of euthanasia? Um, and so that, that kind of led me to think, oh, well, you know, it, rather than starting with some blueprint, let's get our doctrine of Christ sorted out and then think about how we can kind of create a schematic blueprint Tr- to apply down, to the Trickle world. down theology. Yeah, it's kind of trickle down theology. Yeah. I thought, well, like, let's begin with how Christians are already faithfully navigating, yeah. whether it was in fair trade or hospice care or got involved in community organizing. And, and these were concrete lived practices yeah. through which Christians were acting faithfully, hopefully and lovingly in response to the wounds of the world but not in a kind of triumphalist way, but also, um, uh, but but not in the same time compromising on the distinctiveness of Christian witness. And it seems to me that the more workshops I did with clergy and around that, that problem of how do I cherish and honour the uh, my 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 desire to confess the name of Jesus Christ in, and, and hold to what that means for embodied form of life while at the same time being a good neighbor mm. to those who radically disagree with with me and and think that there actually can be a common life between us despite and within our differences um and we don't all have to become kind of new york times reading theater going liberals to kind of end up agreeing or you know ha- having right. some kind of shared life um that seemed to me a, a kind of existential question that was was confronting the church so that that's been a kind of very important question i've been thinking through for for many years now and and aligned ones of how do we respond to suffering poverty and injustice and then often the other question which is often missing uh in a lot of christian kind of forms of social political social engagement where in kind of humanitarian mode is the question of power yeah how does one navigate asymmetries of power um, constructively, not naively, it's always there, but constructively. And what does it mean to do that faithfully, hopefully, and lovingly? So yeah, so that's kind of how I, how I got into it, and then and then kind of broader questions have emerged out of that. But but this attention to concrete practices and the context in which the church is actually trying to live its life uh, has been pretty fundamental. Have you found that some Christian denominations or theologies or practices are, are some christian cultures let's put it that way uh more adept at others uh, to negotiate some of these complex spaces you've just been describing that's a good question i mean i think so i think i mean yes and mm-hmm. no so i think um i do think in the european context the ways in which the the and, and, and it's a pretty fundamental sense. I was just talking to someone in the Norwegian context about this yesterday, actually. Um, the, the sense in which, you know, we might be Lutheran or Anglican or um, Assemblies of God or Baptist, but 
pretty much everyone in a European context is like, well, I'm a Christian and then I have okay. my flavor. Yeah, and I'm being yeah. slightly facetious, but that's kind of the sense. Um, and we're kind of all in this together. And therefore, the kind of context of having to navigate a strangely, a, a kind of context where the kind of culture seems um, at once both deeply shaped is the phrase I use is it's Christ haunted and Christ forgetting. And so that sense in which, you know, you can have, I often think about the contrast with the American context, a film like love actually, which lots of Americans love and watch uh, Sean, I don't know if you've, you know, love actually movie. Um, But, but the end of the culmination of that is a nativity play in a public school. And that is just normal for people in England. And, and that's not, again, you can look at similar public rituals across Europe. Um, that is unheard of. Even here in the Bible, I'm living the Bible Belt. The idea of nativity in a public school, like, blows, it's utterly exotic and weird. And yet it's completely normal for yeah. people in the European context. So people often talk about, oh, Europe, it's highly secular. Yeah. No, 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 no. Like, think about love, actually there's a lot of public Christianity yeah. and you can see even Christmas decorations. If you walk down Oxford street or, or public mm-hmm. high street, anywhere in Europe, there's a lot of public mm-hmm. Christianity, but at the same time, there's a kind of reaction against that and a, and a certain kind of public secularism um, as well. And these both these coexist in a way in which the church state separation in the States is very different. And so I think this combination of sense of all being Christians together in a European context navigating this weird Christ-haunted, Christ-forgetting context where um, I think generates a certain kind of creativity and, um, and, and an and a, and a inherent sense that the church is necessarily in mission. And therefore, the church is only going to be the church if we are engaged in some kind of missional witness. And that has to be proactive, active, and you also, the church needs friends um, if it's going to navigate this context well. So I think that has generated an enormous creativity and attention to a, a more holistic vision of mission. In the US context, my, my sense is, and, and it's kind of shocking, you know, that the evangelical church here is a very different mm-hmm. creature to the evangelical church in the US, yeah. in, the U, in the UK, yeah. in the rest of Europe. But but it's it's always surprises me at the inattention to mission, you know, that the Alpha course is generated in Europe and then it's been exported to America is a strange thing. But there is this inattention to questions of mission. Um and a lot of it is kind of sheep rustling yes. rather than actively going out and, and, and converting. Um and so I think that can produce that lack of attention to the inherently missional nature of the Christian yeah. life can generate a certain introversion and defensiveness which kills creativity uh, and kills this kind of more ad hoc streetwise kind of engagement um that said the 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 sense of reaction against a kind of christendom in in micro that you get whether it's where sean lives in texas or i'm living in north carolina where the sense of there is you can live in a christian bubble here in a way in which you just can't mm-hmm. i think in a european context um the, then the reaction against that whether it's in things like new monasticism or other other forms mm-hmm. of christian engagement i think can also generate a kind of creativity but it tends to be of a over and against 
other bits of the church kind. Mm. Um, Jim Wallace, who I'm a big fan of, but he's always writing books in a sense contradistinction yeah. to yeah. other kinds of Christian. Rather than uh, Tom Wright, if you take another big figure, who's right, how, does, get, how do we get the church to have the confidence to engage constructively right. with the world yeah. is, is the ethos. And those are very different orientations. Um, so both, I think, can produce a kind of creativity, but they're very different kinds of contexts. I mean, some... Okay, there's always exceptions to all the rules all the time. But as a rule of thumb, European and English Christians are used to the fact they're not in charge anymore. They used to be in charge of the emperor and the empire and the countries, but they're not anymore. And they don't really want to be. They're just getting on with doing their life as jostling amongst positions with lots of other groups. Whereas in America, American evangelicals, certainly they still aim to power. <laughs> like it's more, it's more of a, a, a shiny ring that they're reaching for to run the country, I guess. And it's really weird. Like Amer amongst American Christians, they're the ones most concerned and fearful about secularism, but they're the ones least touched by it. Whereas amongst the English and European Christians I know, they're the ones that aren't that worried about secularism when they live in a culture which is much more overly, uh, they have less power. I don't know. Is that, a, is that an observation that you see? The one thing I would say to European listeners is I think America is not one place. Um, something I've had to learn, you know, so if we were having this conversation talking about the Pacific Northwest, which is the most kind of unchurched context, that's a very, that's much Europe-like, although it doesn't have the cultural historical legacies of public Christianity. There's no prayers before parliament. There's no queen, the head of the church kind of deal. Uh, it's not written into the fabric of the stone in the way in which Europe, I mean, Europe's can be more relaxed about Christianity and, and kind of a, the public secularity because they're constantly surrounded by the symbols of, you know, 1,500 years of Christian heritage. So it's it's written into the fabric of the law. It's written in... So there's a sense there's a kind of false... In some ways, there's a, a trading off a, an atmosphere in the European context that's mm. there. And I think there is a, a need to interrogate... Um, you know, particularly imperial legacies mm -hmm. and, and that kind of thing. That 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 that, that what, what has made that public Christianity possible? To what extent is that built off the blood? You know, an extraction of resources from Africa and Asia and places like that. So I think there's a there's a reckoning with an imperial heritage in that hasn't really happened in the church. That I think it would be a European equivalent of the yes. Black Lives Matter moment. Um, so I think there's, there's, there's that, but I think, um, you know, in the South East is not the Northwest where there's a much more militant, least secular context in the Northwest. Um, so yeah, so there's the, the U S and the California is, it's not, shouldn't surprise us that California, which is in a sense, its own country has all of the movements coming over to Europe, largely, whether it's vineyard, um, a, a, a kind of, I would say, large element mm -hmm. of kind of prosperity movement. Or they all come out of California, and there's a reason for it. It's own distinctive religious culture in stark contrast to the Southeast. So America shouldn't be thought of. It's it's four or five different countries, rather badly right. sutured together, and we see, we're going to see that played out in the in the in the forthcoming election. Um, but but I think this and 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 that. 
I think the other thing is then the ways in which the kind of question of the secular here, there is a, 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 a kind of historically the tacit sense that Protestantism, there's a very interesting, Jose Casanova, who's a sociologist of religion at, at Georgetown, has a great take on this of, of how, you know, if all religions which come to America adopt a tacit yeah. Protestant framework. So Buddhism for a good example, in India, no one really thinks of Zen Buddhism and Zaranastra, but whatever it is, different kinds of Buddhism. They all essentially denominationalize when they come to it. So there's a yeah. seminary for Zen Buddhists and they have their own legal structure and their own, and then Theradada Buddhists are a different thing. And so you, everyone basically takes on, even the Catholics mm -hmm. denominationalize. Um, so, so there is a tacit backdrop of a kind of Protestant culture that often isn't acknowledged. That is, I think there that is a that's coming unstuck in a way in which uh, um, it, it, there's a different trajectory of that in the European context, country by country. But there's always a pathway of assimilation for all religions coming into uh, mm. a, a, a new context. Um, religious diversity, I think, here is is just beginning to be felt in a way in which it's kind of wasn't it was felt i think particularly in britain with the commonwealth heritage you know 20 30 years ago we had we were having debates about whether sikhs had to wear by you know motorbike helmets they haven't had that those debates are just beginning now here um um and but but then uh so a good example in the british context is orthodox judaism in the 19th late 19th century kind of recast itself to look like the church of england that's why you have a chief rabbi they have a prayer yeah. book they even adopted umbrellas and, and and bowler hats to kind of you. There's always a pathway of assimilation, a pathway of mm -hmm. how do you look like a religion in that context? You you mm -hmm. take the dominant form that's there, and that's both a legal framework that's given to you, but also a cultural framework. And so that has tended to be Protestant, Protestant in America. Yeah. I think that is breaking down, and there's an anxiety yeah. of influence there. And then the other thing I think that everyone is experiencing is we used to think that uh, culture operated and, and religious, uh, it's kind of it's the secularization thesis, that if think of it like a shower head, everything was moving direction. Um, we, uh, uh, the world is becoming more secular, that, that modern men and women would step into the shower and be washed clean of the foul accretions of their religious superstition and step outside as rational men and women. And that was a singular process, inevitable. And either you were reacting against that, a la Jerry Falwell, or you were stepping into that. But there was an inherent conflict between being religious and being modern. I think that's still a prevalent sense in the US. I think in the in the in the European context, we've realized we're not in a shower, we're in a jacuzzi. And everything's bubbling up from everywhere. Uh, Richard Dawkins is up, as upset as uh, uh, the Archbishop or anywhere else that the world isn't going his way and has to fight and vehemently contest uh, it. And everyone realizes we're all that catching each other's diseases as well. Like, we're all catching each other's <laughs> like diseases, but we, we all realize that everything's contested. Yes, no one, no one's view is normal. Yeah, and everyone is in a missional mode. Yes. If you like that's from confessional atheists through to yes. confessional Christians. Yeah. So I think what in the States, there's still in a sense of this showerhead model. Either there's a kind of we've got to prevent 
the direction of flow, but we're in, it's inherently a contest. And you see this right across the board and this the kind of declension narrative that's very prevalent in 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 kind of more conservative Catholic evangelical Catholic and mm-hmm. evangelical so there's very high intellectual versions of it um and so either then the two responses is either form communities of enclaves like that that can protect the Christian faith over and against the desperate rot or we got to take control of the system yeah but they're, they're, I think they're both operating with a bad sociology of secularization. The reality is we're not in a shower. We've always been in a jacuzzi. Yeah. It's always been hyperplural. It's always a missional context. And guess what? That was Augustine's context. Yeah. That was Anselm's context. New Testament. That's our, it's New Testament. New Testament. Yeah, it's always been it's the, the context of the seculum, that time between Christ's mm-hmm. ascension and his return is the permanent condition of the church. And when we start thinking we can be in control and not be in mission and secure the world for Christ rather than live faithful witnesses to Christ in the world, John 17, we're always in trouble. We're always making an idol of Christian faith rather than living living into Christian faith. Can you tell us more about the, the common life? I mean, common life is a through theme for you. Um, mm-hmm. And you contrast this really, like the common life is a is a target for Christian energy in a way that a Christian empire is not, for example. Right. So, right, right, right. can you tell us a little bit more about what 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 you mean by common life and what you think is going on when we talk about that? Yeah. So let me begin with that. With with thinking about it christologically, okay. so with Christ, always a good place to begin. Um, but uh, so yeah. So I think. If we truly are going to live at, um, in the in the reality that Christ is risen, mm-hmm. and the sense that all things are created through Christ, Christ Logos, and all things are reconciled in Christ, so the sense in which the cosmos finds its point of beginning and unity in Christ—that's a big. Christological claim that I think is there in in New Testament. You see it; it's the opening of John's Gospel. Um, then there has been a sense that whatever divides us historically, and whatever my kind of grasping of the truth is, there's a deeper truth connecting us, and that's the love of God. And this seems to me very fundamental. So, if we go back to Genesis. Genesis, as we now know, written in the context of exile, written over and against the Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian creation myth. And in the in the Babylonian creation myth, uh, certain people are natural slaves; they're lesser humans. Uh, they're the they're the children. They're made out of the blood of a defeated god, mm. and there are a natural elite who are the children, the Theon, the children of the gods who were appointed to rule. And so there's a fundamental ontological at the level of being division between certain kinds of people who are fitted to rule and certain kinds of people who are made to be slaves, essentially, of those people, to, of those ruling elite. And and there you have a kind of, there, there is no way to overcome that difference. That is an ontological, that is a basic, written into the fabric of the cosmos is division 
And the only way that division and conflict is overcome is through violent war. Mm -hmm. So the story of the Numa Elish is Marduk kills Tiamat. I think it's that way around, rather Tiamat killing Marduk. Marduk kills Tiamat. And, uh, and so peace is restored through an act of redemptive violence. So you have, on one hand, this fundamental division between uh, and the and violence is the most basic act uh, in in the cosmos. Um, co- war and conflict is basic to reality, and Genesis fundamentally challenges both of those two mm-hmm. things. We are all children of God, created out of love, not violence, uh, and that is the fundamental reality. Is a unity where where difference can can come into relation with each other without having to kill each other. Yeah. And so when we think about politics, um, often when we say the word politics, the word that's conjured up is immediately uh, party politics, what goes on in Parliament or DC, and you read about on, you know, hear about from Fox News or MSNBC MS, or whatever. That's, that's, that's one kind of politics. That's politics of statecraft. But there's a more fundamental kind of politics which is this negotiation of a common life and how, and really the only alternative to politics is the negotiation of a common life, which echoes and attunes itself to that fundamental God-given reality of we are unified in Christ and love is the basic fundament of existence. Um, The only alternative to a politics of common life uh, is either when I meet someone I disagree with or don't like or find scandalous or shocking, a stranger, there's two options, uh, three options. I can either kill them, I can either coerce them, or I can navigate some kind of common life with them. I don't have to like them. I don't have to yeah. agree with them. But if I'm not going to kill them or coerce them, is there some kind of shared life between us that on which we are flourishing both depends. And whether that's, you know, I was talking about hurricanes earlier, when the hurricane comes through and all the lights go out uh, and, and the street floods, uh, which happens around here, are we going to work together? It doesn't matter. I don't care if you're a Republican or whatever. Like that, are we going to work together because our mutual survival is dependent on that? Or, or are we going to just all, 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 all bets are off and everyone for themselves? Um, so I think that sense of, you know, a nomads in the desert negotiating access to water uh, in the oasis, that's a form of politics. Pastors and elders in a church trying to work out whether they keep the pews in or take them out or are they going to change service times? That's politics. It's negotiation of a common life amid competing visions of the good. We've got different visions of what the flourishing of this institution or this place is amid asymmetries of power. Some people have more power than others, and are they going to use that to oppress others? Or are they going to ensure that everyone has agency and a say mm-hmm. a say in, in the issues that are going to affect them? And so that sense in which that's really a basic condition of not merely of both surviving and mm-hmm. thriving is politics. Anytime there's a common, anytime we've got to come together, there's going to be plural views whether that's in a church in a school in a family and we've got to have some kind of navigation of a common life and that's going to inevitably involve a kind of what i call a dance of conflict and conciliation too much conciliation we never get to the real issues and and some people stay silent so that others can rule the roost 
too much conflict and we end up with civil war or just breaking apart or schism or the various other ways of dealing with that. So there's always this tensional dance. And like any good dance, it involves tension, ambiguity, learning to give and release. Um, and, and so the habits of that, the habits of doing politics together, I would say is, is a condition of surviving and thriving. And I would say it points to when we do it well, we're, we become more attuned, I would say, on a theological register to the basic nature of God-given reality. So <laughs> partisan Christians are, are fundamentally uh, averring from the way of Christ if they're partisan. I think there's something, well, partisan, depends what we mean by partisan. So I, I don't think... what Hunkered down in their bunkers of ideological sameness. Yeah, yeah. I think, I, I think that, that inability... Uh, uh, so I think there is there's a very basic problem here of in but in well I think it's kind of from the 18th century onwards but 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 it's we see it pressing particularly in in contemporary moment with the kind of polarization we see of this conflation of the kingdom of God with the common good and so the the, the confusion of what our penultimate goods and these are goods and we have necessarily you know what is a good education what is good health care uh, what should the tax structure be um questions about abortion whatever it is these are penultimate matters that should be well they're different visions of the good these are highly contested and we shouldn't worry about that conflict right. is inevitable uh, to fallen finite humans um, we're not god we don't see everything and we can't be everywhere um so so that plurality is a condition of humanity of created humanity um the question is then how we respond to that um now so i'm not against vehemently held views uh, that's vital um uh it's the it's the question then of how we uh respond to the other uh, respond to those we disagree with and the in in the current context of polarization the sense of if I compromise my view, I'm compromising the end of history. And, and there's a Christian version of that, and there's a left-wing version of that. So the left-wing version of that is, are you on the right side of history? I.e., it's tied into a progressive narrative. So it's not, if I disagree with, it's not that I disagree with you on a prudential matter that we can have a legitimate difference of opinion. Should we have more market or more state here? No, 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 no. If you take a more, if you take a view from me that's, that's we, I say I say there's more market and you say there's more state, to to compromise or disagree with you is to is to compromise the end of history. The very future is at stake, and you can't compromise. That that's 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 too that's that's a that's to betray uh, the 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 very nature of reality is at stake then in that if you're if you consider me on the wrong side of history um and and there's a christian equivalent which is if my views are so identified with what it means the kingdom of god that they cease to be prudential matters of deliberate you know where we can have legitimate differences about how we approach that and there and and if i compromise on them, I'm somehow compromising the kingdom of God. Then again, there's no scope for disagreement. I'm betraying God if I dis if, if I compromise with you. And so, the sense in which, what does it mean to have a genuine politics of the common good, which can involve an inevitable dance of common? 
Now, there are ultimate matters and there will be moments and someone like Bonhoeffer and Bart in response to Nazi Germany and that, that, that notion of a kind of confessional moment when you can, here I stand, I can stand nowhere else. There are those moments. They're pretty few and far between. But the trouble is Christians at the moment tend to make them, particularly in the States, tend to make every moment. It's very intoxicating. I mean, Kierkegaard talks about this as an intoxicating moment. You you get drunk really on the important your self importance. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think that and there's one of the other things is you know I think the two things two things here is is one is the it, it provides the compensate that apocalyptic there is a proper there's an a properly apocalyptic strand in Christian theology. Um, I think it needs to be disciplined by by a tragic sensibility and what I now call a kind of Georgic or pastoral sensibility, the kind of ordinary kids need to be brought up, crops need to be planted. It's we see it in the poetry of George Herbert or R. S. Thomas, or you, you get it in in kind of Wendell Berry, the sense of the Georgic life, the agricultural cycles, that that ordinary everydayness needs to you we're always in this kind of tensional existence between living in apocalyptic time yeah the tragic suffering is ongoing terrible things happen life doesn't go the way you thought it would how do i live with god in the face of suffering Mm. and the kind of everydayness and and god's beauty and power can be felt in all of those registers i think in the current moment there's a sense in which we are beset by a certain apocalyptic climate change, Trump, you know, there's an apocalyptic sensibility that, that one can get caught up in. And it does provide certain compensations. It's very exciting. It is intoxicating. It's thrilling. I am the agent of the end of history, you know, kind of moment. It's inevitably that that's, that's a way lot more fun than, Oh, I've got to go and plant the crops. You know, that's not a very exciting prospect. But so I think there is compensations there and a drama to, to kind of having an either or, as Kierkegaard would put it, or a, either only friends and enemies and either you're with me or against me. These, these, these provide an emotional uh, 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 kind of high. It's addictive. That, that is, it is addictive. Yeah. Um, so I think there's that, that element. But I think also the, the sense of, um, yeah, I mean, I'll let me leave it there. But, That's, I mean, a lot of, I think a lot of, my listener, it's fair to say a lot of the people listening to this would hear your vision of the common life and say that that is something I would love. That sounds really good. Uh, I do not see that happening right now. It is we have passed that point. Or uh, what? What does my Christian engagement with politics look like when the reality is QAnon, Congresswomen, and right. hyper partisan right, right, right. and you know, baby yeah, killing yeah, Democrats yeah, yeah. and black hating Republicans. Right, 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 like right. it's just so. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and yeah, so I have these, yeah. these people who, who who basically come to me in despair, saying like, "Can I opt out? If am I allowed to just not vote anymore? How do I take part in the democratic process? Like, where 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 is the common life in the age of Facebook and post truth and super PACs? Right, right. Where is the common life?" <laughs> So I think, so let's bracket the mechanics of the democratic process yeah. for a moment. Because often when we talk about politics, what immediately, as I said before, enters our imagination is voting and parties yeah. and bureaucracies and law. Yeah. So everything becomes a conflict over statecraft. Yeah. Let's step back from that and think about the common life outside of that yeah. or pre that frame of reference. And I think that 
presents new opportunities and possibilities. There are a few things to say in relation to that. So one is is often it, it depends where we begin the conversation. So I was having this um, conversation with some folk at Duke, and Duke is great. We, we, we train technocrats to go out into the world and tell everyone else how to live their lives. And that's generally, you know, because we've got the bigger data set than everyone else. Mm. Um, and, and inevitably, people hate that stuff. Like, you know, they, they're like, don't tell me. Let's, but So they, I had a bunch of wonderful technocrats, very clever, uh, who concerned about climate change and very concerned that people in the southeast where evangelicalism was big had a kind of anti-science and there was an anti-climate change sensibility. Yeah. And, and, and they were kind of telling me this story of like, oh, well, and we show them these charts and we have these data. And I'm like, not surprising. Everyone goes, Pfft. you can't see me. I'm holding my fingers and blowing a raspberry. <laughs> um, you know, but that, 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 that's what people's response is. Yeah. And I said, why don't you go out and actually begin the conversation with what they love? What do they cherish? What do they want honored? Ask them why they love hunting and fishing. That's a big thing around here. Lots of people go deer hunting and fishing and things. And then, and then have a go and let them talk about that and what their, what where they live, the place and the forests and the rivers mean to them, and then say have a conversation about what it would mean for the places where they hunt and fish, uh, to, to be there for their children and their children's children to be able to hunt and fish in those places. Now, of course, my good liberal progressive New York Times theatre going technocratic friends. They just think hunting is wrong, so they they struggle with that bit of the conversation. Um, but but then but they did see like that there's a that's a different way to begin the conversation. Uh, and when you're beginning with what people love and what they feel is being desecrated, that is much more generative. Now we we might come to different disagreements about um, what policies it would need to be there for that forest or river to still be you know, be huntable in, in two generations time. Um, but it, but that's a different quality of conversation. Uh, so, so I think that's one thing is where do we begin the conversation and, and do we begin with listening? Uh, because listening says to however much we disagree with someone says to that person, you matter, you're worth listening to. You've got a voice and a view that's not me. And I'm not, what we tend to do is we have an ideological checklist and we listen, but what we're listening is whether that person conforms to my right. ideological yeah, checklist. Yeah, yeah, we're waiting for the buzzwords. Yeah, yeah. And then if they don't, if they don't read item three, and then I pounce yes. and I've got yes. my kind of. Oh, Luke, <laughs> you've just described the way I read Facebook. Oh, oh I'm I'm red with embarrassment. You've you've got me. You've got my number. <laughs> so yeah, so I think that 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 sense of which am I actually hearing? And then and often we know from pastoral conversations, often the move. It is there's the presenting issue, but then actually there's the real issue underneath it. So there's the kind of acting out through my support of Trump or my support of Bernie or whatever it is. But actually then what are the issues deeply personal to me that are driving that? And can we ever hear that story? Mm. Now, I think there are certain places you're not going to get that on Twitter and Facebook. There's a kind of localism and a proximity factor to this. My uncle at Thanksgiving, my yes. aunt over Christmas, yes. you know. That is possible. But that, I would say, is where we need to begin when it's this polarised. Yeah. Um, yeah. And those conversations matter. Uh, and, and, and restoring someone uh, and treating people not simply as biology, yeah. a kind of member of a population that's in, abstracted and just kind of represents, also, but rather treating people as biography. Yeah. 
they've got a story there's someone they come from somewhere can we can we restore people can we behave, respond to people and restore to people their yeah. biography rather than treating them as kind of tokens and representatives of ideological positions and i think that now and part of that i think is both on the left and the right there's this there's this, often this move to abstraction and this move to the ideological checklist yeah. and we lose the biography yeah. it's of inhuman. the person at we, that we, point we it is inhuman it's it's dehumanizing um so I think that that's one issue. Can can Christians be people who who listen for people's biographies? Uh, I might ask you one question because I, I just people just ask it. It's so simple, and I'm going to ask it, and then we'll edit this back in properly. Yeah. It's simple. You might even roll your eyes. It's about voting, right? But everybody <laughs> always asks. So, so Luke, we got a lot of people in this day and age who just look at the voting system and despair. And they also think nobody represents things that I believe in as a follower of Christ. I'm just not going to vote. What what happens when somebody comes up to you at a cocktail party and says, yeah, I'm not going to vote this year. What do you say? <laughs> I think, well, that, funny, going back to where, where I began and when I moved over into here in the 2012, uh, there, wasn't, uh, there wasn't the kind of conversation I was having in the UK up to that point. Um, there was, a, I think, a kind of sense of, People didn't vote not for reasons of despair, but for reasons of not getting their shit together. Um, whereas, whereas here, when I moved here in the States, to 2012, that election, I, I couldn't believe that, that amongst students and colleagues, that was the question. It wasn't like who to vote for. It was like whether to vote. And, the, and, and, and I was like, whoa, this is a, feels a very different conversation. And, and the sense in which that both parties were dripping in blood and, and there was a kind of Anabaptist sensibility that ruled the roost at Duke Divinity School that time. And my wonderful colleague, Stanley Havas, had kind of, even though he himself, as he, he described himself as a yellow dog Democrat, which is, he'll vote for any, any, any Democrat. It could be a yellow dog. Um, they just have to be Democrat. Um, and has always voted himself. Um, but, but somehow that sense that the church was sat outside of politics and was a city on a hill pervaded a lot of the students and, and that voting was participation in a violent structure, which is a kind of more intense version of, I don't see my views represented. Um, and I, I, yeah, I do, I do take a different view. Uh, I, I, it's not that I can't imagine contexts in which um, not voting is the appropriate gesture. I, I think there are. I mean, I think there are certainly in uh, where we've got a total um, subversion, you know, we can think of many authoritarian or totalitarian states where democracy is a kind of fig leaf to, to kind of legitimize a fundamentally unjust system. Um, so, uh, so yes, it, it, I'm not saying there is always in every case one has to vote. That, that's certainly not the case. But voting is always a prudential measure in which one is, it's, we tend to confuse voting and participation in statecraft and the mechanisms of statecraft, i.e. party politics and this kind of stuff. Um, as operating on a logic of identification. Do I identify with this party? Um, and that's a different, uh, and, and not surprising, we live in a representative democracy and it kind of lends itself to that. But I think that's exacerbated. There's a shift from a logic of representation. Is there sufficiently there that something of my views are represented approximately? 
mm-hmm. to a logic of identification. I have to be identified yeah. with this ideological yeah. position. And if I'm not, and so if I'm not seeing my position, if I don't feel that identification at a personal level, yeah. somehow I can't take part. It's a, it's an existential. I've somehow like broken my my purity of my individual soul has been tainted. Well, I think that's a slightly different. So I think yeah. there are two things. There's the logic of identification. Somehow there has to be a total identification mm. with it. And then there's the logic of purity. Mm-hmm. So rather than a, 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 a logic of kind of prudential measures, mm-hmm. what prudentially in the round do I think serves common flourishing what yep. package of policies better approximates something along the lines of what I think would be better or worse, which is operating on a better or worse kind yeah. of framework. Not good and evil, just better or Not worse. Not good and evil, just better and worse. Yeah. Um, and, and so that, and then the sense, and, and to refuse to vote, to, to not, to refuse that kind of approach and say, um, it's, it's, it's either completely for me or against me. And I don't see anything for me. Therefore I, I can't, identify with it and i'm not willing to engage in history i.e ambivalent ambiguous uh, and, and what is politics politics is action in time so it's action in this time amongst these people at this place yeah and it's always ambivalent and ambiguous and you don't know the future and you don't know the outcome um, and you've got to take a risk and that's what it means to be fleshly, finite, creaturely. That's creaturely existence. And so I think, I think, mm. and I'll put this very strongly, I think to not vote in a ordin- under ordinary circumstances, like, and that's a very wide set of so, i.e. non-authoritarian or totalitarian circumstances, yeah. is Gnostic. Right. It's, a, it's actually a refusal to be this kind of creature denial of the fleshly life it's, it's a denial of creatureliness yeah right it's a denial of finitude it's, it's it's a sense in which i can have total mastery and know and unless it's completely coherent with my view now mm. it, you can have a view in good conscience and say um i think they're they're like conscientious objection mm-hmm. i'm 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 going to kind of withdraw i think that i, I can i can hear arguments along those lines and part of this you know so for instance in the, in the states the judgment is is america a democracy that hasn't lived up to its promise in which case voting is a kind of prudential measure to help shivy it along mm. to a, a, a more approximation of its ideals or and this is certainly a view on certain realms of the left and hard right um but more on the left uh 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 is democracy fundamentally a settler colonial state yeah uh which is rotten at at its origin and the the, the constitution itself is a, a document of oppression in right. which case to participate in this system it's is equivalent to an authoritarian totalitarian moment it's to fun, it's fundamentally to legitimize a, a fundamentally at root unjust system. Mm-hmm. And certainly that's certainly the debate in, um, in certain, for instance, in black nationalist contexts and, and black Marxists, you know, the sense in which if you're um, a first nations or indigenous grouping, or if you're uh, African-American in America, should you, d- does America have anything for you? Yeah. 
uh, just to be brutal, when white guys start having this conversation with me, I slightly lose my patience. Yeah. I'm like, it's such a privileged thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's a kind of, cause actually you, you know that the consequences of that won't really affect you. Yeah. Whereas yeah. even though it's a debate and so in black nationalist kind of context and black Marxist context, they still generally vote to at least for what I, you know, what I've read and seen. Right. That's, that's generally because you know, you know, it, it's, it's, you you will be directly affected by those consequences so it is a kind of also a measure of privilege mm-hmm. to not vote yeah. um, because actually you know the impact you're not going to be that impacted by it yeah i mean i do think that there's a sense of the kind of the worst of all worlds is to just quietly opt out of voting and i have said to sometimes people i've said like if you're going to not participate in the democratic process be be uh, a kind of articulate and vocal about it like say why because otherwise you're just you're still participating in the common life that way right yeah because we, yeah, yeah. we think that if you opt out of voting that's like opting out of common life and we're saying no those aren't the same things you can just because you don't participate in this one act every four years doesn't mean you are not political it doesn't mean you don't have a stake and you need to you know if, if any good is going to come from you're not voting at all then it has to be that politicians hear why you're not going to or your friends and family know why you don't do it yeah i mean i think again it depends you know if someone if i'm having this it's, it's quite particular if someone's having this conversation and i've certainly had this conversation someone's really involved in community organizing yeah. is is engaged in all sorts of other kinds of common life yeah. politics fully political um yeah. fully political with a small p and they say i just think the voting system yeah. and the way parties operate is you know um um kind of bonkers and doesn't mm-hmm. do anything fine that's like i guess like that's it's in the round you're there's an a there's a civic agency that's being exercised but just not in this particular moment if people are basically passive and they're only exercising the civic agency at once every four to five years and they say that's when it's like yeah no no that's 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 gnostic that's refusal to live in history that's not kind of taking responsibility for the common life which you're benefiting from yes but not contributing to and so it's it's a kind of it's a self-love writ large mm. um in augustinian terms it's not recognizing there are goods in common on which we all depend and yeah. statecraft through party politics is a mechanism for attending to it's those goods one in common. way of being political i mean yeah. I, I actually yeah. have to say probably most of the people i meet aren't not voting time. Usually the other side, it's usually people who buy, like, oh yeah, I'm political. I vote. And that's it. That's their story. They're political because they vote. Uh, uh, and they don't do anything else. And I think, uh, actually, that's not very political either. <laughs> like, just voting and then not having anything to do, not not contributing to your civic life, not contributing to the common good, not having an imagination for the social and political use of power that you have. You are... You're just totally rescinding your political status right away if, if all you do is vote and think that's it you know yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i mean, i mean, but I, I mean i want to be sympathetic there, there's a there's it's difficult you know not everyone has time energy it's hard so sometimes voting is all one can do right um but i think it, it does matter going back to what i was saying before i think it does matter how we envision the act of voting if if it's if it's operating on this mm. identification process yeah um that's, it's inevitably it, it's going to be am i totally identified with this platform or not if one views it as a more prudential matter of approximation 
um, and that it's always ambivalent and ambiguous and one always has mixed feelings about it. And one is and should, one shouldn't be completely happy with one's vote. Um, that's, no, again, right. you know, not if, if that, if, if you're so identified with the party, you think you have to vote for it. It's not like a marriage. No. You know, and that's often our problem is we've yeah. come to view political parties yeah. and ideologies like a marriage. Like yeah. this is a full time commitment. I'm totally. Yeah. It's it's it ceased to be a penultimate prudential measure. It's it ceased to be politics, and it's become a question of faith. Well, this um, is okay. So this is the one of the issues that definitely is looming large is on the right, especially as is, is the capture of of the appeal to Christian. Uh, uh, ideas and language and the hearts and minds of Christians and the successful appeal. So, you know, uh, we all agree that, that the left doesn't, uh, that the Christians aren't, you know, dominated by the left, but it, it just so happens that right now it's the right that has captured the, the imagination of the Christian. And so quite often it, it isn't actually because they Christians like their economic policies or their international, you know, benefits or anything. It's because the Christian stuff that they're voting for these parties so how do we, what do you do about those kind of things when you see a, a political party co-opting the, the Christian language? Is there a protest that you have? Can you, can you protest against a party <laughs> precisely for that? Or just say, you don't speak for me. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's, yeah. I think that that is legitimate and, and, and quite proper to kind of the refusal. And there certainly moves, you've got something like the Moral Mondays, um, uh, uh, poor people's campaign developed by Reverend Barber the third here in um, uh, the US has mm-hmm. begun here in North Carolina. Um, and I think that is, he's very cleverly said, uh, that's why I called it moral Mondays. He was contesting the Republican yeah. takeover of Carolina and the kind of identification of the Republican position with a moral position. He was, he was saying, no, yeah. that's not a moral position. This is a moral position, yeah. care for the widow, the orphan, the, um now uh yeah so i think there is a there's a need to uncouple again it's uncouple the penultimate from the ultimate to use bonhoeffer's terms um and 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 where parties over identify themselves as a just as i mean your own work on a christian nation yeah no like there's a nation and it's a penultimate political form and it might be here in 20 years time and it might not like that's there's a kind of contingency to it yeah. and where political parties refuse that contingency and fallibility yeah. and uh, then they're guilty of political messianism yeah it's they they and this is what jesus was precisely fighting against it was the zealots who wanted this is why Ju- judas yeah. is disappointed he's not bringing in yeah. a materially through material state-driven mean taking over the state to accomplish the the messianic kingdom it's refusal of that and so we're always wanting to repeat we all we're always judas wanting a political messiah who's going to usher in the kingdom through material means um and so i think there's a that's a deep deep problem um in in the the kind of yeah it's a perennial issue yeah really um yeah um, but and it and it takes new forms. But I think we're we're in a we're in a new form of that today. But it's the same old perennial issue, um, illogically. And uh, yeah, so I think I think that 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 kind of avoiding a political messianism for identifying a party with one as a messianic program. Um, now, 
even at a lesser scale where I just think there are certain touchstone issues, whether it's abortion or same-sex marriage or whatever it is one's, one's issues are, um, I think there's a sense in which it is important to kind of see those views in the round. So a great example is abortion. What has genuinely lessened abortion in America is decent welfare structures. And there is ample evidence to show that. Like when you don't have those welfare structures, we see a massive spike in abortion. So like if you really, if people are really interested, then then let's have attention to policies which actually deliver rather than a kind of um, faux concern, which I'm not convinced, and this is where the um, question, and I I don't like this kind of argument because it's so trite often, but there is some, it's important to consider that the the issues like abortion and the rest of it on the right aren't really the issues. It's the sense of the loss of a certain kind of white suburban yeah, yeah. um kind of position yeah. and the the, the an, a, a weaponized nostalgia for a world and so these yeah. are these issues are really just tokens that now i think that that can be overplayed right. that kind of argument yeah. and, and a way to kind of dismiss very serious concerns and yeah. these are very yeah. serious concerns yeah. and they're right concerns so I, I, I'm wary of overplaying that, yeah. but there's a sense in which we do need to look at issues in the round and see how our really be question are really these the issues. If I'm really concerned about these issues, yeah. then actually, what are the policies that genuinely help them? Yeah. And then, and then challenging people if that's actually not the issue, is it something else going on? Is this just a kind of way of securing yourself? And it's not really about the Christian issues at all. It's actually about am I voting for a party which kind of gives me the feeling that I'm still going to be in control or still have a, um, and, and there's a great phrase I've come across recently of, of this sense of um, an aggrieved entitlement. Right. Actually. And I think there's a lot of politics that is driven by an aggrieved sense of entitlement. I should be getting this. I should be getting that. The world should go this way. Yeah. And suddenly it's not. Yeah. And I'm angry about that. Yeah. Well, that's not a righteous view. No. Um, and so I think there's a getting getting to that and and and, and interrogating that is important. Um, now, all of that said, I, you know, as I said, the, there are real issues here that that are vital and and you know matters of conscience. But but often I think that there isn't sufficient interrogation of which policies actually deliver on those issues, and they might not be from the party you think is most explicit about talking about those yeah. issues. Uh, Luke Brotherton, I'm going to come in for a landing here. I've absolutely loved this. Uh, uh, Sean has also had to had to flee for, for other reasons to do with the common life. He had to leave our interview early, but he also sends his love and his thanks. Uh, can I just heartily recommend to our to the listeners that Christ and the Common Life, Political Theology and the Case for Democracy is a book that is well worth having a look at it, uh, it, you just spend a lot of time dwelling on lots of different forms of political expression and uh, you, you build the case very well and you are a, a name. When they, <laughs> when, they, uh, when they make up the bibliography of political theologians, it's going to be Bretherton Luke at the top of the pile. So Luke, thank <laughs> you for God. coming. And uh, I really loved having this conversation with you. And in fact, I, it put me in mind that perhaps after the elections, 
in November. Maybe we should yeah. have a debrief. That would be fun as well. Yes, I think we should. I think we should. Now, absolutely, Stephen, absolutely delighting honor to, to be with you and a wonderful conversation. Well, uh, I feel like I'm a North American who's now living in England and working as a political theologian. <laughs> and you are an Englishman who's now living in North America working as a political <laughs> theologian. What an odd and crazy mixed up world we live Strange. in. Are you, I can remember, are you Canadian? I am Canadian. You're yeah. Canadian. I thought that was right. That's yeah. right. You're not you're honorary, nor, like North American is true technically. Like <laughs> Canadian language. <laughs> Canada is not the US. <laughs> no, it's a very different animal. Very oh, different. Really different. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah. a whole nother hour long podcast. Right. Yeah. I have to get a Canadian on. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for this. No, delight. And I I know that people will be so happy to hear this too. Excellent. Take care. Thank you very much. God bless. Bye. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.